be back again together. There we go. And to look into this epistle, and as you remember from last week, uh, we did a survey of, of Titus's life to set the, the context for this letter and to understand a little bit more of the person to whom Paul addresses this letter. And now, uh, this morning, we're going to dive into the salutation, the opening to this letter, and draw from it all that we can. And a salutation is a little bit of a difficult portion to preach because there's a certain form to it that you really just can't avoid, a literary form. So we are going to organize our thoughts around that literary form, but we're going to see that as we get into this salutation, there is some very, very rich theology for us to learn. But the title of our study uh, this morning is entitled, A Letter from a God Who Does Not Lie. A Letter from a God Who Does Not Lie lie. Paul's salutations always include hints at what he will go on to, to, to talk about in that letter, and certainly we will, our, our attention will be drawn to this description of God that is so very important for us to capture as we start on this letter, because this letter, all that Paul will go on to write, comes from this God who does not lie, and so it establishes for us in a very important way the authority for which this, this uh, letter uh, it, it, it comes to us, and we're having a problem with our... Okay, let me try this again here. It's coming up? There it is. All right, okay. There we go. All right, let's look at this salutation in the first four verses. The Apostle Paul writes this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. As I already mentioned, Paul's introduction to Titus follows the same pattern as a, a typical Greco-Roman letter. It includes a self-identification. It includes the identification of the recipient as well as a basic greeting. But as was Paul's custom, he never just takes that form and uses it as is. Through all of his letters, there are rich theological themes that are wound into this salutation, themes that are important for us to grasp right at the very beginning before we launch into a deep study of that letter. In fact, Paul's Paul includes so much theology here in verses 1 to 4 that Titus, the, the, the salutation to Titus is actually the third longest salutation of Paul's 13 letters. Only Romans and Galatians has more content in the salutation. And we know from those letters, they're very, very theologically driven. Paul is doing a whole lot in those letters to establish very, very clearly some essential Christian doctrine, and, and we find that as well with Titus. 
very rich, very packed full is this salutation of theology. And as we look at this salutation this morning, we're going to note that Paul is going to expand a little on on certain doctrines such as the goals of his apostleship. Why was he an apostle? And what was his purpose being commanded by God to serve in this capacity? He is also going to expand upon the doctrine of revelation and look at the nature of revelation as it has been both determined in eternity past and brought to us in this life. As well, he's going to look at the character of God and he's going to use a, a phrase to describe God that is, that is unique to this salutation. We don't find it anywhere else, though we find it echoed in different terminology. And, and in fact, not only that, but we're going to see some very, very, what we call high Christology. Some of the most direct statements on the deity and unity of the Godhead, deity of Jesus Christ and the unity of the Godhead that we'll find in this salutation. And so, with that in mind, you know, we're going to organize our thoughts around the literary structure of this salutation, and it's going to follow these points. First of all, we're going to uh, look at the messenger's identity. It is from a, a God who does not lie. Paul makes it very clear that what he communicates to Titus does not originate in his own mind, he sees himself as a messenger. And so he begins uh, with an identity of this messenger, a self-identity, and we'll find that in verses 1 to 3 and spend the majority of our time in those verses. We will also see uh, an identification of the messenger's audience. That's Titus. But not only Titus, as we will see as we look a little bit beyond the salutation, Paul writes to Titus but he's got more than just Titus in view. In fact, it'll come out to us, especially in the very last verse of this letter. And then thirdly, we will see the messenger's wish. What he desires at a most fundamental level, both for the immediate recipient and for all who would grapple with the contents of this letter. Let's look at first the messenger's identity. Verses one to three, Paul begins with a very simple self-identification. He defines himself in three ways. First, he begins with his name. As was his custom with every single letter that he wrote, he uses his Greek name. His Hebrew name was Saul. But he uses his Greek name here in writing to his, his recipient, Titus, to highlight his association with the Gentiles. We could look at other texts, especially in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, or even in that commission that was given to Saul, to Paul, on the road to Damascus, there in Acts chapter 9, that highlight that Paul was a chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He saw himself as the messenger of God to the uncircumcised. And so in all of his letters... Bearing direct testimony to that recognition, he uses his Greek name, even though he was a Jew. He also defines himself here, as, as the NASB translates it, a bondservant of God. Literally, a slave of God. A slave of God. And this, this particular self-designation highlights his exclusivity, his exclusive loyalty to God. Now, to, to bear this out a little bit further, to see how Paul will use this same term, doulos, 
elsewhere. We can even look a little bit later on in the letter. In chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul is going to use the same term to refer to a literal category of of people. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Paul uses that same term for that lowest category in the Roman hierarchy of humanity to refer to himself, to describe himself. But this is not just a reference to his his recognition of complete subordination to God as his master, but it actually takes us back into the Old Testament. And it fits with Paul's designation of himself here in these verses. You see in the Old Testament in Hebrew language, the prophets of God were referred to as the servants of Yahweh. And the writers of Scripture will either refer to themselves that way in the Old Testament, or they will refer to other prophets that way. Moses, for example, was called a, a servant of Yahweh. Joshua, David, Daniel... And all the prophets were called the servants or slaves of Yahweh, emphasizing their utmost submission to and loyalty to God and His Word. So Paul uses that designation here. He uses it elsewhere in his salutations as well. You can look at Romans chapter 1 verse 1 and Galatians chapter 1 verse 1 and Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He's not afraid to show his concept, to his understanding of the lordship of God. He is is a slave of God. But he also refers to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one. And this particular self-designation highlights the authority that that Paul has from the very head of the church, Jesus Christ. It points the reader Titus and everyone who would come across this letter back to the fact that it was actually Jesus himself who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and not only saved him at that moment, but also gave him his commission to testify, to serve as the mouthpiece, the authorized delegate, the emissary from Jesus, to pass on the testimony, the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is Paul, the slave of God and the sent one of Jesus Christ. Now moving beyond that, Paul then develops that last idea in greater detail. And with the, with the word for that we find there, we see that Paul now launches into a more lengthy discussion of why he was called to be an apostle. Why was that? And this is informative for us because it helps us understand that which comes from his pen. It helps us understand how we are to receive this letter to Titus. And with this word for, Paul introduces the first of his two purposes for his apostleship. His purpose was to establish the faith and knowledge of believers. Let's look at that first purpose of Paul's apostleship. 
He says to establish or for the purpose of establishing the faith. The faith. Now that reference to faith in even Paul's own writings can refer to one of two things. It can refer to a content of knowledge. It can refer to the contents of the gospel, the contents of Paul's preaching. So that is faith in an objective sense. We can talk about the Christian faith. But Paul's not using the term in that way here. He's instead referring or using this term to refer to the response. He's using it to refer to the personal response of listeners to that content. The faith. The faith. And how do we define that? Well, when we talk about faith, we're not just talking about some kind of superficial affirmation of information. No, as we study this personal response, this gift from God, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is a gift from God. It is more than just a simple awareness of details. And so over the centuries, theologians have sought to categorize or to summarize, systematize all the different aspects of salvific faith, biblical faith, and we can put it into three components. It involves what is called notitia, which is a, a, a true recognition of facts presented in the gospel. In other words, there can be no saving faith apart from an actual hearing and awareness of what that faith is all about. You cannot have saving faith in some kind of mystical way where there is no knowledge. As Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, faith comes from hearing. There has to be the preacher, as Paul says even a little bit earlier in that text, in Romans 10 verses 14 and 15. So it includes the recognition of facts presented in the gospel. But it's more than that, because there are many who hear those facts. It also includes what is called a census. A census, which includes an intellectual assent to those facts as being true. So it's not just a hearing of those facts or an intellectual awareness that, yes, that is what the gospel presents. That in itself is not saving faith. It needs something more. And the second of the three components is that it requires an intellectual assent to those facts. It includes this assurance that this is indeed true. That what is presented in the gospel is not just myth, but it is historically accurate. It corresponds to reality. There is this intellectual awareness that yes, this is true. But again, in and of itself, just those two ingredients are not enough for salvation. There is something that is more, and that is what we call fiducia. Fiducia, the embrace of all of these true facts as necessary for me. You could put it this way, that when we talk about this third aspect of saving faith, what, is, what makes it true is that all of a sudden, all of these facts, all of these realities that are affirmed as true, all of a sudden take on a personal pronoun. It's for me. It's for my need. I believe this with all my heart. 
fiducia is that embrace of all of this, that I need this, that this is true, and it is my only hope. That's true saving faith. It includes all these three elements. And the Apostle Paul says that my apostleship is for this. He goes on to explain this when he says it is for the faith of those chosen of God. Now Paul is very careful here to to indicate that this full-fledged faith of notitia and ascensus and fiducia, that is not something that we in ourselves can produce. It's not something where we sit down and say, I'm going to conjure this up within me. Paul teaches on this elsewhere very clearly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it is the gift of God. But here in this context, he uses different language to communicate this. He says that this faith is of those chosen of God. The response of saving faith, the full-fledged response, is produced by an ultimate cause outside of the believers themselves. That cause is, is God. It is God. And that term that is used there to indicate this, the chosen, is very important to recognize. And it's, it's very clear in the, in the original, as it is even in, in the English. There's really no ambiguity in these terms. The ambiguity comes from, the, from human pride that wants to somehow put foot in the door and say, well, surely I had something to do with this notitia and ascensus and fiducia faith. Surely some element of it originated in me. But the Apostle Paul is clear here. He says that his apostleship is all about this faith, the instilling of this faith that is expressed by those who are chosen of God to believe. The term chosen is made up of two Greek words, which literally, they together literally means to speak out of. It has the idea of a, of a group and someone choosing, selecting from the greater group a smaller group unto himself. This is a term that is used in the Old Testament commonly to refer to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the chosen nation. Why? Not because they chose God, but because God in in His mercy and grace chose Abraham, an idolater, appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12 and said, you're mine, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so all the descendants then are that nation that come out of Abraham, the one whom God chose. Again, not because Abraham chose him. It's used in the New Testament. We even saw this back in our study of 1 Thessalonians as well. In the opening verses of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, we saw the same word used in in the noun form when the Apostle Paul, after giving proof of or fruit, evidence of fruit of the salvation of the Thessalonians says this, knowing, brethren beloved by God, His choice of you. This fruit in the Thessalonians' lives came about because God had chosen 
them. And so it comes through here as Paul addresses Titus. Paul says, My apostleship exists for the establishment of faith, saving faith of those whom God has chosen. This is what we call the doctrine of election. In the big white textbook called Biblical Doctrine, edited by Pastor John and Richard Mayhew, we find this definition of this doctrine. Election is, quote, the free and sovereign choice of God made in eternity past to set His love on certain individuals and on the basis of nothing in themselves but solely because of the good pleasure of His will to choose them to be saved from sin and damnation and to inherit the blessings of eternal life through the mediatorial work of Christ. When Paul is thinking of and and writing and describing his, his apostleship, this is what his mind is on. He exists not himself to bring about faith in the lives of his listeners, but as an instrument. An instrument whom God would use to bring His elect to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is a precious doctrine, and Paul refers to it in many of his letters. And this is what would have been the motivation for Paul to go to Crete in the first place, to plant the churches. And this would be the motivation for Titus as well, as he considers his own ministry. That God has His elect. There's an interesting, a very interesting moment in the life of the Apostle Paul that Luke records in the book of Acts. After some very difficult ministry on his second missionary journey, after he planted churches in Philippi and, and Thessalonica and Berea, he preached in Athens, he ends up in Corinth, and Paul admits later on when he writes to the Corinthians that Paul arrived in in Corinth worn out. He had been already severely persecuted. He had seen the, the mass rejection of the gospel message, and then he arrives in this corrupt, immoral city called Corinth. And there's every reason to believe that there in that, that cesspool of sin that there would await him many dangers. And Luke records this precious moment when the Lord Jesus, in one of only a few times, again appears to the Apostle Paul in a vision. And he says these words to Paul, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city, many chosen ones in Corinth. The very next verse goes on to say, and Paul settled there and spent a year and six months in that city. This was foundational to Paul's own understanding of his apostleship. It was sure and it would have fruit because of God's ultimate election of those who would believe. This is what motivates great missionaries throughout history. You could study the life of William Carey. Some great moments in his life come right on the heels of some of the most difficult 
sorrowful moments as William Carey reflects upon the sovereignty of God and the fact that he has his people in that people. John Payton, a 19th century missionary to the South Pacific, believed the same thing. In one of his diary entries, he says this, Father, you have chosen a people out of every tribe and tongue to be saved. Some of those chosen ones are on this island, and I won't leave until they are safely in the fold. This is what motivated John Payton, and it is what motivated the Apostle Paul in the undertaking of this apostolic commission. God has his people he has his people, and he had his people there on the island of Crete. Yes, a people who were described as evil beasts, gluttons, liars, drunkards, but God has his people. And Paul saw his apostleship as, as not responsible for the actual instigation of faith in the lives of those Cretans, but rather as a mere instrument to see these people brought to God, by God's own power. There's another element to this first purpose that Paul sees for his apostleship. He says not only is it for the faith of the chosen of God, but it is also for the knowledge of the chosen of God. This term knowledge is not the typical word for knowledge. It's not just referring to some kind of simple comprehension of facts. Rather, the term here is a comprehensive term that, that describes a kind of knowledge that affects the whole person. It affects the mind, the will, and the affections. Paul saw his apostleship as, as being used by God for the purpose of bringing about this comprehensive knowledge. And it is not knowledge of general things, it's specifically here a knowledge that conforms, Paul says, to the truth. That which corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be specifically with respect to life and godliness. It is also, notice this, it is also a knowledge that leads somewhere. It, it has a certain content, divine truth, but it is a knowledge that inevitably leads somewhere. Paul says it is a knowledge that leads to godliness. A knowledge that leads to godliness. This is why Paul saw his reason to be. To be used by God as this instrument, this, this sent one. So that God's elect would come to this full embrace of the gospel message and then from there to grow in the knowledge of the truth so that their understanding would be comprehensive and it would lead in this life to a particular maturity. And that maturity is described as godliness. That's a very important term here. Now Paul is not going to use this term elsewhere in Titus. He's only going to use it here. However, as we get into Titus, this is a major theme. Paul is putting his finger on it, and this is important for Titus to understand, as well as those in the Cretan churches to understand, that all doctrine, when truly understood, is practical. Doctrine is not given merely for the sake of contemplation. It's not given merely for the sake of being known. There is an end goal 
that is in view. And Paul says it here, it is godliness. And what is godliness? So that term is, is certainly one missing from so much of today uh, when, when there's so much crudity and, and, and sarcasm and bitterness. What Paul has in view here in godliness is a life of thoughts and attitudes, words and speech and behavior that that display awesome respect for God. That's godliness. The mind, the, the words, the behavior that in and of themselves show awesome respect for God. That's godliness. And as we get into this letter, Paul is going to hit this nail many times. That this is what it's all leading to in this life. This is why the gospel has been given to save sinners for the glory of God, but to have a result in life. That is godliness. When those who have been so marvelously saved would lead a life that would reflect the glory of God of that salvation. John Murray, a theologian, uh, a Reformed theologian said this, he said, the most transcendent truths of the gospel have a direct bearing upon how the life of the believer is to be lived. And so if you'd be one who, who would say, well, all I need to do is just know my systematic theology textbooks and memorize a lot of verses and I've, I've found the, the key to the Christian life. The Apostle Paul said, you're misunderstanding this. There is something that comes after that comprehensive knowledge. The comprehensive knowledge, if you understand it correctly, cannot help but lead to this awesome reverence for God that is displayed in attitudes, in words, and in lifestyles. So there we see the first purpose of Paul's apostleship and we need to understand that that is what is, is, is at play in everything else that Paul writes beginning in verse 5. This is why Paul is writing to Titus. This is what his apostleship is all about. To see himself as an instrument, bring about a personal response of faith, a full knowledge of the truth, and then a life consistent with godliness. But there's a second purpose that's Reflected in our text, it begins in verse 2. We find it with a preposition in, but it's not the normal preposition in in the, the Greek, and that, that's why we could translate this a little bit different, and in fact, even say for would be a better way, I think, to translate that, for the hope of eternal life. And this is the second of the two the second of the two goals that the Apostle Paul has in mind as he thinks about his apostleship, to instill hope in believers. And this word for hope is not just an, an optimism that helps you get through the day. This is not just a, a power of positive thinking kind of thing. This is justified certainty about the future. That's Paul's understanding of hope. It's not wishful thinking. This is justified certainty, having conviction of the future. And the future that Paul describes here is the future of eternal life. Eternal life, a very important theme throughout Paul's writings and throughout the New Testament. 
And this eternal life is not just a, an, an eternal state of existence to say that, well, I'm going to exist forever. The forever part is correct, but you've got to work on the existence part. Paul isn't describing mere existence. He's talking about fullness of life. That's eternal life. Fullness. A life of what we could say indestructible joy. Unwavering joy. That that is already to a degree tasted in this life, but will be fully realized at the moment that we see Jesus. So as believers, we know what this is. We already have eternal life. We've been made alive. And we know already those tastes of this fullness. And yet we also know that those tastes of that fullness in our experience is, is imperfect. It, it, it waxes and wanes. But we also know that that is not what will be for eternity. That there is coming a time when it will never wax and wane anymore. It'll, it will achieve its fullness. And that, it comes, that comes in the moment that we see Jesus. And, and, and Paul says, this is why I exist. This is why I exist. This is the purpose of my ministry. Not only to bring the elect of God to personal faith, and then to a comprehensive knowledge, and then to practical godliness, but also to give them certainty. To give them certainty in this life, of the life that is even coming. The life that will come in fullness and finality, in an indestructible joy. Now having said that, the Apostle Paul goes on to a a very interesting digression here and we'll see how much we can get through this morning of this digression he begins it in verse middle of verse 2 he says which which god which god who cannot lie promised long ages ago with this pronoun the apostle paul now launches into an extended statement on why this hope is so certain So he just talked about instilling hope in eternal life. He exists in order that believers might grasp that and be fully absorbed in it and confident and certain of it. But now Paul wants to give the basis for that certainty. And so he launches into this. And he says, first of all, this this hope of eternal life, this confident assurance This hope was promised. It was a promised hope. It was not merely proposed. It was not suggested. It was promised. That word for promised means to declare. To declare to do something with the implication of an obligation to carry out what is stated. In other words, when Paul uses this term, Paul is referring to the fact that God has promised this hope. But not only has He promised it, but with the promise has come the fine print of God's self-declaration that He must make this happen. The obligation is not on the part of the one who receives the promise. The obligation is on the part of the one who makes it. It has been promised. 
But more than just that, more than just the, the act that is used there, described there, Paul says this was promised by a God who cannot lie. Now this is a very important statement. You never will find the exact wording of this statement elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul essentially creates a word here. Literally, it means the non-lying God. The non-lying God. And Paul, Paul creates this language in order to make a point. Whenever there's language like this, we know there's emphasis. Paul is reaching into something unusual that would strike the ears of the listeners. And he's doing it to make a point, to emphasize in an absolute way, in this case, to emphasize in an absolute way the utter inability of God to speak anything contrary to the truth. That's why Paul says, we have hope. Because the one who makes the promise and includes in the promise the commitment, the obligation to fulfill the promise comes from one who can never tell a lie. It's not just that he won't tell a lie as if it's against his will, but it is that he cannot tell a lie. It is against his ability. He can only speak the truth. Now, as I said, this is a very unusual statement, but of course, the concept is repeated throughout the Old and New Testaments. We can go to 2 Timothy verses, uh, ch- chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, if we are faithless, if we do not do what we say, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Or go to the Old Testament, some great statements in the Old Testament Numbers chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? Or in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now again, this was so important because look at Titus chapter 1. What were the Cretans known for? Go to verse 12. A prophet of their own, Cretans, said this, Cretans are always liars. It was their culture to tell truth and to, be de- to tell lies and to be deceptive. It was, it was their whole ethos. That's the environment in which they lived and moved and had their being. They told lies, deceitful words. And so you can understand that nobody believed anybody. They always knew that what was being spoken was filled with lies. Now that's the state of the Cretans And we know elsewhere, even from the text that we've just read out in Numbers in 1 Samuel, that that's mankind in general. Man lies. But Paul says, this promise, the gospel, the promise of eternal life, has been made by a God who cannot lie. In study, I came across a statement from a Yale theologian by the name of Nicholas Walterstorff. 
He's actually kind of a popular guy, even in, in some reform circles. And this is what Nicholas Walterstorff says uh, about speech act and, and speech and so on. He says this, he says, I don't myself find obvious that God should assert only what is true. Why should God not accommodate God's self to us by sometimes asserting what is helpful in our particular situation, even though it is not strictly speaking true? Parents do this sort of thing all the time and are praiseworthy for doing so. Now he's reasoning up from human experience and creating God in his own image as a parent. But the scriptures are unequivocal. God cannot lie. And so as we get into this letter, and as we come across some very difficult exhortations and teachings, we must remember, this is truth. God cannot lie. What God says through this letter is absolute truth. And that means we have no other alternative except to accept it as such because of its source from the God who cannot lie. But let's take that even broader and look at God's word in general. That his word originates in a being that cannot lie. And so no matter what we come across in this word, it is not a lie, but is truth. And so when God says, forgive, that's not a lie. That's truth. When God says to husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands, that's not a lie. That's truth. And when God says, forgive one another as Christ forgives or forgave you, that's not a lie. That's truth. When he says to children, obey your parents and honor them, that's not a lie. That has come from a non-lying God. When God says, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins, that's not a lie. That's the truth. When he says, cast all your burdens on him, for he cares for you, that's not a lie. That's absolute truth. When he says, believe in me and I will give you eternal life, that's not a lie. That is the truth. Thomas Watson said this, he said, quote, the truthfulness of God is a great pillar for our faith. Were not he a God of truth, how could we believe in him? Our faith would be fancy, but He is truth itself, and not a word which He has spoken shall fall to the ground. Such a precious reality, the God who makes the promise of eternal life is an online God. We sing of this in different hymns, one of them is Amazing grace. And we'll close with this for our study this morning. Continue. We'll pick up here in, in a couple Sundays. 
But I want you as we close to reflect upon the promise made by an unlying God. Particularly the promise of the gospel. Stanza 4 of John Newton's Amazing Grace says this. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, unspeakably so, that you are a God who cannot tell lies. And so whenever we come to your word, we know it is truth, untainted, not corrupted, not accommodated to our errant ways of thinking, but it is truth. And on the one hand, that, that truth convicts, it lays us bare, it reveals who we are. On the other hand, that truth gives us the greatest of all promises. The promise that we can have eternal life by receiving the gift of faith by believing the facts of Jesus Christ, acknowledging them as true and embracing them as our greatest need and solution. We thank you that the promise includes the guarantee that you place yourself under obligation to bring the full promise to pass. And that now we can sing. We can sing of this eternal life not because we know we will be able to make it through, but because you have promised, obligated yourself, and you've made that clear to us in your truth. We pray that as we continue this study, even in this salutation, that this truth would would transform our lives and lead us to the kind of maturity which the Apostle Paul himself had in mind as he wrote under your superintendence. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.